Hi everyone, I'm Monica Toriello and you're listening to the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the consumer and retail industry. Thanks for joining us today. On this episode, we'll be zooming in on a huge and growing part of the consumer sector, and that is the Chinese consumer market. China is the world's second largest economy, and Chinese consumers have grown in buying power for the past decade. And today, of course, much of the business world is looking to China for lessons on recovery. China being the first to experience the COVID-19 outbreak and the first to come out of lockdowns and reopen businesses and stores and restaurants and so on. So to talk to us today about China are two McKinsey partners who are based there and who have not only done a lot of research and analysis on the Chinese consumer, but they also, of course, work with many consumer companies in China. So first we have Felix Po, a partner based in the Shanghai office. Felix leads McKinsey's work on consumer marketing and sales across Asia. Hi, Felix. Hi, Monica. Glad to be here. Also joining us is Daniel Zipser, a senior partner based in Shenzhen. Daniel leads McKinsey's work in the consumer sector in greater China. Thanks for being here, Daniel. Good to be here, Monica. So to start off this conversation, it would be great if you could just situate us, right? Tell us what's going on. Give us an overview of the state of the economy and specifically the consumer sector in China in mid-2020. Yes, if I were to start, the word that comes to mind is resilience. When I survey the Chinese economy, when I talk to many of my consumer clients, they have made a near full recovery uh, in top line versus 2019. Obviously, it varies by sector, but in many cases, particularly for my multinational clients, they are leading growth for their companies worldwide and other markets are actually looking to China as that glimmer of hope in terms of what the recovery could look like uh, post the large-scale outbreak. So I would say overall, it's a hopeful place to be in China in mid-2020. If I were to pick one word to describe the state of the Chinese consumer, I would say confident. And I did find the last six months very remarkable. Um, to see how back when the crisis hit, China being the first country in late January, the whole country stood together. I was very touched. How the consumer now is coming out of the crisis and feeling the sense of pride and confidence um, that they have mastered it as a country. And many Chinese would say that China has actually mastered the crisis um, better than than, than other places in in the world. you do see a confidence, which is also translating into spending. Resilience and confidence, those are very hopeful and inspiring words, especially, you know, hearing them as I sit here in the US where the current situation is uh, quite different. So many companies around the world are looking at the Chinese market as, as a reference point, right? As a sign of things to come in their own geographic region. So let's talk a little bit about consumer behavior in China. What behavioral shifts have you seen happening in recent weeks and months? And which of those do you think are China-specific versus which ones do you think will play out in other parts of the world in similar ways? Yeah, I think the first thing to note um, when it comes to talking about shifts that we see in China and applicability to the rest of the world um, is the fact that, you know, the Chinese consumer is typically amongst the most optimistic in the world. Uh, They have 
largely not lived through a recession or a downturn because even in 2008-2009, that was quite muted within China. So I do think that you know, the rapid recovery and bounce back that we see in China can be replicated in other markets, but we do need to caveat that we are dealing with a very resilient, optimistic consumer, uh, and that may or may not be the case in other markets. Uh, What I see in terms of trends would be absolutely an accelerated shift to omni-channel and online. We saw that in online grocery retail, we saw that in apparel, we saw that in cosmetics, the rise of what people term social commerce, an explosion in live streaming or selling through WeChat private domain groups. Uh, We saw the rise of the at-home occasion as people were restricted in their movements. They actually found, probably to their surprise, that they actually like spending time at home, cooking for themselves. We saw an increased health and wellness consciousness, which was already underway pre-pandemic and outbreak, but really became more pronounced uh, during the outbreak. Monica, I think here to stay trends are typically where behavior meets satisfaction. So in that vein, I expect online shopping and the acceleration and the increase that we saw in China, I expect that to be here to stay, to persist, because service levels in China are, are high The delivery speeds are quick, fulfillment is in a matter of hours, and consumers genuinely liked and appreciated the experience. And once you've signed up to a platform, once you've created a password, once you've set up a payment method, you don't have to do it again. So that's an example of a trend that I think is here to stay. Um, I contrast that, for instance, with certain parts of Europe, where the infrastructure or the service levels are not as high, where delivery fulfillment is in a matter of weeks, not days or even hours. And in those parts of Europe, for instance, I think that there will be no increased online shopping because behavior does not meet satisfaction. Let me highlight one more important difference between China and many other parts of the world. Um, In China, even basically at the peak of the pandemic in February, the unemployment numbers were only lightly raised by one percentage point. Uh, This is very different than what you would have in Europe or in, in, in North America, where you actually do have a substantial increase in unemployment. Why does it matter? I think it does matter because in the China context, uh, back in in February, people may not have been spending, but it was not because of not basically being able to spend based on their income, but it was because they were staying at home and not going out to the shopping malls and the department stores. So in that respect, once basically the market opened up, this consumer was basically still employed, still had a good salary, may have even saved some money uh, during the time in February and March, and is now out again and spending this money. So he actually has seen an increase in savings back in February in the China market. I think this is something which is structurally different between China and other parts of, of, of the world. If I highlight one more point, and Felix was alluding to this when he talked about the trends, I think one thing which is important to, to note is none of the trends we're seeing right now in China are actually new. 
if we would have spoken a year ago, we would have spoken about the same trends. The difference is that the trends, the Chinese consumer trends we've been seeing last year have been massively accelerated and amplified in importance. A lot of what you've been talking about has been reflected in the consumer sentiment surveys that McKinsey's been doing across, you know, 40 plus countries around the world, including China. And based on those surveys, you've divided the behavioral shifts into three categories, depending on how sticky we expect them to be, right? So the three categories are one works for now, two accelerated shifts, and three potentially here to stay. And when I look at the behaviors in each of those categories, some of them aren't surprising, like, you know, remote learning at home for children is in the works for now category, because I think most parents want to see their kids back in school as soon as it's safe. You know, they don't want their kids at home looking at the computer screen all day. But to me, some of the other categorizations were a little bit more surprising, like online fitness falls under potentially here to stay. What's your take on some of these behavioral shifts or any of them surprising to you? As a father of three children, I can heartily um, echo the sentiment of wanting them to go back to school as soon as is humanly possible. It's actually uh, really fascinating uh, to look at what we think might stay and persist and and what might not. What I think is going to persist is is the rise of the at-home occasion. And I think you you typically had a Chinese consumer um, who enjoyed going out, who enjoyed uh, going to malls. You know, we talk about retailtainment. I do think that through this outbreak, what people found, even as they were quote-unquote trapped at home, is that they genuinely liked some of the activities at home. Obviously, there will be some reversion to the mean. Uh, People will go out again. They will go to malls. But I do think, um, you know, that the uh, affinity for the at-home occasion has risen and that companies will need to really be very thoughtful about how they tackle um, the different at-home occasions uh, in order to continue to be successful going forward. So linked to that, for instance, would be um, online fitness. I do think it's a trend. Of course, people will go back to gyms, but there is still... Uh, a bit of a fear of large crowds and gyms are, if you will, a perfect petri dish for uh, catching infections. Um, But I do think it goes back as well, uh, Monica, to what I said. If people tried a new action and the satisfaction levels were high enough, then that behavior likely sticks. I think many many of the things we've been talking about, um, people tried for the first time. Um, back in back in February, you do see, for example, uh, the older generation um, trying to buy online for the first time. They experienced it as convenient, so we leave this as to stay. So I think the online gyms. I don't think it's a trend, basically, which which is new, but it's a trend which got accelerated, and because of the convenience of it, it stays. Another product category that has seen more of its sales migrate to the online channel during the pandemic was luxury goods, right? And Daniel, you've done a lot of work in the luxury sector, which uh, in recent years has relied quite heavily on Chinese consumers shopping both in China and abroad. How has COVID-19 changed the luxury sector and what are its prospects for the next 12 to 18 months? So global luxury sales first year of 2020 are down around 30%. Um, This is largely driven by uh, a soft U.S. market. 
if you take a lens about China, I think there are two ways to look at it. One thing is you look about China in terms of people buying things domestically here in mainland China. Um, and the answer is that's actually strongly growing right now. Um, probably it's growing stronger than, 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 than ever before. Um, Chinese people don't travel. Um, and that prevents them from buying luxury goods overseas, which is very much basically impacting the luxury companies who are heavily dependent by those travel spendings. Uh, but if you talk about domestic spending, that's actually accelerating because, first of all, people don't buy outside of China, so they will buy in China. And second of all, also, people save a lot of money by not traveling. If you don't do a summer holiday trip, you have more money to spend. And the luxury handbag is often basically seen as a good thing to actually spend that money on. There is no fatigue of, of luxury spending in the China market. I think I described earlier the confidence and people actually like also to show the confidence, transport the confidence by buying luxury goods. So overall, we speak about China domestically is going through the roof uh, in terms of luxury. Globally, uh, it will still depend and we will see when the travel restrictions will be, will be released may still be a longer time to go there. Felix, in June, you published some research about how consumers in three Asian countries, including China, plan to spend their money post-COVID. What were your big takeaways from that research? I think the good news is that when we did the research, consumers told us that generally they were not cancelling uh, their purchases, right? Um, and this is good news because uh, these are typically what we would call more discretionary spending. There is, however, likely to be a certain amount of pragmatism and trading down. For brands, I think more good news is that they want to stay within their brand of choice. Uh, but in order to trade down, they would either buy a cheaper product within the same brand or a product on promotion. And an interesting finding is that we found that a certain number of people had what we termed residual social guilt. So there is a proportion of the population that does not want to appear ostentatious or overtly enjoying themselves while the country is still recovering uh, from a pandemic. Felix brought up promotions, which I think is, a, is an important topic. Maybe spend a bit more time on that as well. The promotion intensity has substantially increased in China over the last months. And wh why, why is that? Is the companies were trying to basically get consumption back, get people back to the stores, driving online sales. So right now it's a very attractive point of time to actually buy products in China, given that you find very compelling offers and prices. So as you've been working with consumer companies, what are executives thinking about at this moment in China? What topics matter to them most right now? But also on the flip side of that, what do you think are maybe two or three topics that they should be thinking about more that they're not paying enough attention to? Let me start what's on mind of every, every executive in, in China right now. Everybody in China is aware that China right now is holding global consumption and the share of consumption coming from China uh, has increased substantially over the last months for every multinational company. Um, so what's on people's mind right now is growth. Um, and how to get the growth? I think there are three priorities, which are digital, digital, and digital. It is just incredibly important for every Chinese companies to tap into the new uh, ways of digital engagement, as well as digital commerce. 
there are elements like social commerce which have emerged back in, in February and we believe that they are to stay. Monica, you also asked basically what they're, what they're not looking at, like what are companies basically um, have less on their screen. I think that there is a bit of an enthusiasm right now about the China growth story. I do think that companies could pay actually more attention, not to swing in the other extreme right now, but to take more um, attention to make the business more sustainable, to think a bit more for the, for the long term, um, and don't basically be carried away by now seeing the skyrocketing internet sales, but thinking what does it take in terms of the organizational setup, what it takes about the organization structure for China, what it comes to the innovation pipeline for the mid to long term to actually remain successful in China, not just in the short term, but also in the mid to long term. When I talk to my consumer clients, what's top of mind is really the impact of a prolonged global downturn. And if that happens, obviously that affects uh, consumer confidence and consumer spending and ultimately has an impact on companies that are based in China. So that's the number one concern. And based on what's going on in the US and Europe, I, I will admit the picture is probably mixed at best right now. In terms of what um, potentially they can use this time to think more of, I do think that this outbreak has really just put into stark perspective how important it is to have a resilient and agile supply chain. And so I do think that uh, you know companies should take this moment to really de-risk their supply chain if it's single source, for instance, in a fairly volatile area, now is the time um, to find multiple sources of supply. Uh, and it's also about increased localization and regionalization of their supply chains. And I do think that we are at an inflection point when it comes to this consciousness on health and wellness. And I think companies can play a role in actually defining and shaping what exactly that means uh, with consumers. Um, so be it fitness, be it zero calorie, zero sugar options, be it uh, food replacement uh, products, which are actually becoming quite popular um, today. Uh, I do think that, you know, the infusion of health and wellness options across consumer sectors uh, is something that companies can be very thoughtful about. You've both mentioned new challenges and new opportunities that the pandemic has brought about. I'm curious if you've actually seen companies start doing things differently on a day-to-day -day basis. In other words, do you think that COVID-19 has changed how companies operate or how they plan for the future? Something that maybe is not new, but is certainly more pronounced and certainly part of the advice we give companies um, is that companies today should not plan for a specific future, which is so incredibly uncertain and made even more ambiguous given the outbreak. But what we advise companies to do, and certainly many of my clients have done so, is to plan um, for a series of different plausible scenarios. There is a lot of uncertainty, but if you can identify a number of likely scenarios and the trigger points for when different scenarios might play out, that's how we believe you ultimately become more prepared. And there could be actions that actually make sense across scenario. And those are no regret moves. So for instance, if you believe health and wellness is a trend, regardless of any scenario you can play out, if you believe an accelerated online shift 
is going to happen in China, regardless of any scenario, then those are the actions you prioritize. There are others which will become important depending on the trigger point and depending on which scenario uh, you think might be coming true. But that's what we're asking clients to do, to really uh, embrace more uncertainty, to be a bit less specific in their long-term planning, but to really take into account multiple scenarios and develop a muscle uh, in scenario planning for the future. The environment is changing so fast and we're not going to know what the next crisis is. Um, so being able to actually be more agile, more reactive to the situation is what, what really matters. And let me give you an example how fast things are changing. We actually spoke with consumers in a consumer survey, which we conducted in April, in April beginning of April, and asked, um, do you think that you will do any, any domestic travel again um, as, a, as a tourist? And two, three percentage points of the people said yes. So pretty much nobody. Then May holidays came just two, three weeks after um, we conducted the survey. And suddenly 100 million people traveled on holidays and did a trip for the May holidays. And you can't predict those. You need to be ready and be prepared that you live in a world of uncertainty and be prepared to be quick and agile to react if new things pop up. If you could gather all the multinational CEOs and give them one piece of advice about either entering China right now or doing business in the Chinese consumer market, what would you say? Well, I've always been asked, Dan Daniel, what's the next China? And the only thing I can tell the multinational CEOs is China is the next China. China still has massive opportunities to drive productivity. And as a result of that, we will see continued increase in salaries. And even 2019, 2020, China has seen that increase in salaries. And that's lifting people into the middle class and into the upper middle class. Um, China remains a middle class consumption driven economy. So in that respect, the prospect this is having for uh, consumer companies to, to drive consumption and drive revenues going forward is, is unparalleled. I don't see any other economy in the world which will be driving the same level of consumption growth over the next five years. If I may, I think uh, the advice I would have if I could gather the multinationals into one room um, is to really hammer home the message that China is different. Empower your China organization to make decisions for China, in China, and it means Anything from innovation to go-to-market uh, to basically responding to local competitors more quickly and nimbly. Typically, MNCs tend to lose out because it's hard to wrap uh, your mind around the notion that China is different and may require a different playbook from the rest of the world. There could be multiple layers of approval before an action can be carried out. And in China, you have a number of agile, nimble local competitors for, for whom these constraints are not true. And so uh, my advice would be to really empower the China organization uh, to be able to compete effectively and well against local competitors, because I truly believe that MNCs still have a role to play 
still can be differentiated and still can win in China. And ultimately, China for the world. What you develop in China on products, on services and go to market very often is cutting edge and should actually serve as an example for other parts of the world. That's what I would like to tell uh, the MNCs. So let me just pick up on that because, you know, clearly one of the ways they can compete best is by attracting Chinese talent, right? So talk a little bit about how consumer companies can compete for talent in a world where talent is uh, scarce, right? Especially digital technical talent, that kind of thing. Um, What do consumer companies need to do in order to attract and recruit and retain the kind of talent that they need to win? I think many people say, well, money can solve it all. And I think the honest answer is no, that's actually incorrect. Um, so that world, which is often described that Chinese, Chinese executive would basically switch companies if they're even given a few RMB more. I don't think that's, that's, that's correct. I'm not sure it ever was, but definitely not anymore in 2020. I think it is much more around creating an environment where actually people can progress, where they see growth and they see opportunities. And the local companies are often better actually suited to articulate that. Whereas the multinational, particularly small international companies, struggle to define a, a growth path uh, for their, their Chinese talent. Practically, there are a number of things you can do. So for instance, if this is not already done, it should literally be done tomorrow, where the China organization essentially reports directly to the global CEO. In other words, take it out from under the layers of Asia Pacific or Asia as a whole, because as Daniel said, there is no next China. China is so important, it needs the visibility of the global CEO. Uh, And it goes back to my previous point about empowering the China organization. That's a very visible sign um, that you can send in terms of how important and vital Uh, China is to the future of the company. Um, I also think that you obviously cannot uh, outdo local companies in terms of China pride, but what MNCs can do is provide a global career progression path um, for executives. I think that's still attractive just in terms of being able to get experiences from different markets. That's certainly something uh, that can be emphasized. And I think a dark horse uh, you know, and here's a personal opinion, I think purpose will become more important as well, especially coming out of this outbreak. Um, And I think if MNCs can articulate um, essentially a higher order purpose in terms of what they are doing, that will be attractive, particularly to younger uh, Chinese talent. Purpose is something I'd love to talk about some more, and I do agree that it's becoming more important, but we're out of time, so perhaps we'll explore it in greater depth in a future episode. It's been a great conversation, so thanks again, Daniel and Felix, for talking to us about the consumer sector in China, and to our listeners, thanks for sticking around. Until next time, this is Monica Toriello. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast. A transcript of this conversation will be posted on mckinsey.com soon. To suggest ideas for future episodes, please email us at consumer underscore podcast at mckinsey.com. 
To stay connected with us, subscribe to our email updates on mckinsey.com. Thanks again for listening.